You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to NeuroFrontiers, produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. Your host is Dr. Anthony Alessi, Fellow of the American Academy of Neurology and Stroke Program Director at the William Bacchus Hospital in Norwich, Connecticut. The doctor will see all of you now. Group meetings with Parkinson's disease patients may be beneficial to their health and the way they cope with the disease. Dr. Lisa Schulman is co-director of the Maryland Parkinson's Disease and Movement Disorders Center in Baltimore, Maryland. She's also a fellow of the American Academy of Neurology and editor-in-chief of the Academy's Neurology Now patient book series. Today she joins us to discuss new advances in treating Parkinson's disease on NeuroFrontiers. Dr. Schulman, welcome to ReachMD. Well, thank you for having me. Let's get right to it. Group visits to doctors have been proven to be effective for other patients with chronic diseases. Why now is it just becoming looked at with Parkinson's disease? Well, that's a good question. I think probably the main reason is that it's really a matter of reimbursement. I think that group medical office visits has a lot of strengths that really need to be looked into, both in this study as well as future studies. But the fact of the matter is that uh, our current insurance reimbursement system does not include uh, group medical office visits, and unfortunately, that's why it hasn't gotten enough attention. Lisa, if you could explain to me and the audience, how does this group visit work? It's really been discussed for quite some time, and the idea behind it is that you put together a group of patients who have a common problem It could either be a certain disorder in the past that's been studied for diabetes or coronary artery disease, in this case, studied for Parkinson's disease, but it's also been looked at as a way to bring people together with different chronic disorders, since after all, there really are common threads in terms of managing all chronic disorders. Let's just say issues regarding communicating with your physician or managing medications in general. Basically, you bring people together who have some common need, common healthcare need. The physician uh, leads the group. It's generally about five to ten patients per group. Patients generally attend these groups with their family members, their caregivers. And essentially, there's generally some sort of a hybrid where there is both a group time as well as some individual time, since after all, some information is personal. So that's basically the setup. Are patients who are in the earlier stages of their disease more likely to be successful in this setting, or do you mix people who are in advanced stages of disease with those who are earlier? That's a very good question. And the study that Dr. Dorsey and his colleagues did in Parkinson's disease, basically, you were eligible to get into the study and do the group medical office visits if you, in fact, had Parkinson's disease. You just needed the diagnosis. The study actually looked at group visits compared to traditional care. Patients were randomized into either the group visit group or the traditional care. They gave care over the course of a year And just to jump to the punchline, they were looking to see if they could show any improvement in quality of life with the new group visit format, but there was no difference in quality of life nor in any other endpoint with the new group visit format. Now, the interesting part is related to your question because the question is whether 
one might, in fact, see a more effective uh, use of group visits if you limit it to patients who had more common needs because, after all, early patients and advanced patients have very different issues. In this study, they did not do that. All patients with Parkinson's disease were put together in group visits. Lisa, what's your impression? Is this a real benefit to patients as well as the physicians? Do you personally find it a really rewarding way to go about seeing patients? Well, you know, among the hats I've worn is that I was a health policy fellow, which is sponsored by the American Academy of Neurology, as well as the ANA and the Child Neurologic Society. So I spent a year in Congress working on Medicare-related issues in health policy. And I've always looked upon things like the approach of group visits as one of the many novel approaches that we need to look at in order to potentially get more of a handle on healthcare costs. Interestingly, one of the criticisms here was that actually there wasn't a big difference or any difference discernible in physician time because when they actually put together the time that the physician put into being at the whole group visit plus 10 minutes individually for every participant, it would have been pretty much the same. So there wasn't any time advantage, and obviously right now, given the reimbursement problems, there's no financial advantage whatsoever. On the other hand, in terms of quality of care, I personally think that there could be a way to use this kind of format and improve quality of care. I'd bring up two areas. One is the authors of the study raised the issue that they were spending more time with the patients than they would in a one-on-one visit overall. They actually got to see the patients have a, a break where they had a snack and were watching them manage through some of their daily activities a bit more than a traditional office visit. And they felt that additional face-to-face contact had merit to understand their patients' problems better. I see it as being potentially advantageous because of the opportunity to, let's face it, oftentimes when you deal with neurologic patients, we're telling the same information over and over for a given condition. Uh, I'm a Parkinson's doctor, so there are certain kinds of problems that are common, and I'm describing how to deal with those problems over and over during the day. Here's an opportunity to talk to a group of patients who are all dealing with a similar problem. Let's say it's problems with their Parkinson's medicine wearing off, how we will deal with this problem. And I can present that once to maybe five patients and their families answer questions so that everybody learns from each other's experience over time, that could potentially be a model that's better than our current one. Dr. Schulman, I'd like to continue with this discussion on Parkinson's disease, but if you're just tuning in, you're listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and joining us today is Dr. Lisa Schulman, co-director of the Maryland Parkinson's Disease and Movement Disorders Center in Baltimore, and we're discussing new advances in treating Parkinson's disease. Lisa, to switch gears a little bit, let's chat a little bit about a different study that really looks at the use of a treadmill when treating patients with Parkinson's disease. How does walking on a treadmill improve their mobility? Really, it's so very important, Tony, to focus on the crucial position that gait and mobility have in Parkinson's-related disability. 
the problems that Parkinson's patients have with their gait, balance, and mobility is the key indicator of development of disability. So anything we can do to delay the onset of problems with walking is a really good thing. And the fact is that our current approaches, whether we're talking about pharmacology or surgical approaches, are not adequate for gait, ambulation, balance, and mobility. So we're looking now at non-pharmacologic approaches, including exercise, and treadmill is just one of those. Well, what was the exercise regimen itself? In other words, was there a specified amount of time that you wanted your patients to use the treadmill, a specific resistance or incline on it? Can you explain that to our listeners? In the study that we did, every Parkinson's patient who was enrolled was randomized into one of three different study arms, each of these being a different approach to exercise. Two out of the three were on the treadmill. One of those treadmill groups were at a higher intensity, and those patients started at the pace that they were comfortable with on the treadmill, and they attended these sessions. They were supervised sessions three times a week for three months, and they started at about 15 minutes, and they gradually increased in duration, velocity, and incline to their tolerance. And they were encouraged week by week, session by session, to increase their velocity, incline, and their duration, and they got up to 30 minutes three times a week. The other treadmill group walked at a comfortable pace, their own self-selected pace, and they were only increased in terms of duration, so that their duration got up actually even a longer, 50 minutes, 5-0, 50 minutes, nearly an hour, three times a week for three months, but no incline, no additional velocity. Now, the third group were doing muscle strengthening exercises of the lower body because we were interested in improving walking. We had them working on these resistance machines, either the leg press machines, leg extension machines, or leg curl, again, for three times a week for three months, and their weights were increased week by week as much as they tolerated. I bet you'd like to know what happened. Absolutely. I I want to know which group did best. Well, it's a really interesting set of results. First of all, our primary outcome measure was something called the six-minute walk, which is how long, what distance people can walk over six minutes' time. And what we found was that all three groups showed improvements in the distance they could walk on the six-minute walk. But the group that did the best of all was a bit of a surprise because it was the lower-intensity treadmill group, the group that had been walking at a comfortable pace but for longer periods of time increased their distance the most compared to the three groups. Were you surprised at that outcome? I think that there is no question that I and my colleagues were surprised because there is some previous data to suggest that it is the highest intensity of exercise that would be required. And what our study showed that, in fact, one doesn't need to increase the intensity of the exercise much in order to improve mobility. And that's a very good piece of news for our Parkinson's patients who are more advanced and can't do higher-intensity exercise. But there's one really important point to make here, 
and that is that we did look at changes in cardiovascular fitness in our three groups, and we showed that both the patients in the lower-intensity treadmill group and the higher-intensity treadmill group, both of those treadmill groups both had improvements in cardiovascular fitness. So asking our Parkinson's patients to walk long distances at a comfortable pace was enough of an aerobic stimulus to improve their cardiovascular conditioning. Lisa, how does this translate to your practice now? I mean, we've read there are other studies talking about Tai Chi in Parkinson's disease patients, Latin tango dancing. How do you approach this with your patients, and what do you recommend they do? This study actually is very helpful for, I would hope that others will agree, for neurologists managing Parkinson's patients because Parkinson's patients very often ask, is there anything that I can be doing to help myself? And many of us have believed that exercise played a role but really didn't have anything specific to say other than encouraging general exercise. But this particular study does show something very important. Both the treadmill improved our patient's mobility, as I mentioned, and the resistance exercise, the muscle strengthening exercise, also improved, but from a completely different mechanism. Interestingly, the patients in all three groups were also assessed in terms of their muscle strength before and after the three interventions. Only the muscle strengthening group, the resistance group, increased their lower body strength. Those who'd been exercising on the treadmill for three months had minimal improvements in strength. So the bottom line is that both treadmill exercise and resistance exercise improved patients' gait and mobility, but by two different mechanisms. One, through cardiovascular fitness, at least that's one of the mechanisms, and the other through muscle strengthening. So The bottom line is when I see patients and now they ask me, what should I do? I tell them to do a combination of treadmill and resistance exercise at about three times a week. And I think that's the right way to go for what we know at this point. Lisa, this is a phenomenal study, and I really want to thank you for spending time with us uh, today. Dr. Lisa Shulman, who's professor of neurology and co-director of the Maryland Parkinson's Disease and Movement Disorders Center in Baltimore. Lisa, thanks again for being our guest today on NeuroFrontiers. Thank you, Tony. You've been listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. NeuroFrontiers is produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts.